James chapter 5. We finished the book of James today. Say goodbye to James. We're in chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20. If your Bible has more than 20 verses in chapter 5, you need to take it back. Get a refund. The topic, James instructs those who are severely sick to call upon the church elders to anoint them with oil. The title of our message, Oil Sick. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to the end of this wonderful book, I pray that we would be able to, in a sense, reflect back on all of the things that you've taught us by your Holy Spirit, but also really plug into the things that you have to say today. And and in some ways, Lord, I think the things that we're going to talk about today are the most serious uh, in, in terms of the topic that is involved. And so I pray that we would listen attentively to your voice, that we would receive comfort and strength for the journey ahead. We thank you and praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, How are you doing? That's the infamous stereotypical greeting between mob wise guys. You might remember a series of Budweiser commercials some years ago that highlighted it. In the first, I think, it was set in a bar. And as each guy would come in, he would just say, How are you doing? And then the bartender would say, How are you doing? And then the next guy would come in and, How are you doing? And they would all just go around saying that to each other. Then they followed up with a commercial in which an out-of-towner from Texas sat at the bar. And each time someone arrived and asked him, How are you doing? He would start telling them how he was doing. (laughs) And so the bartender was trying to keep people from greeting him. Because, see, he didn't realize it was a greeting and not a question. How you doing is remembered by some of you who admit it, that you are fans of the show Friends. It was Joey's magic pickup line for dating girls. Now, I've, dug, I've called the series in James Wise Guy in the sense that James calls upon us to seek wisdom from above and then apply it in every situation of our life. You'd expect, therefore, the ultimate spiritual wise guy to ask, how you doing? And James doesn't disappoint here at the end. He doesn't, of course, use that exact phrase, but as he closes this letter, he asks questions to probe how the dispersed Messianic Jews were doing. I'll organize my thoughts by asking two of the questions James asks. Number one, is any among you suffering? And number two, is any among you sinning? Let's take a look at suffering in verses 13 through 18. A pastor went to visit Mrs. Jones, an elderly woman from his church who had just had an operation. As he was sitting there talking with her, he noticed a bowl of peanuts on the stand next to the bed. He began to eat them. When it was time for him to leave, he noticed he had eaten all of her peanuts, and he felt bad. Mrs. Jones, he said, I'm so sorry. I ate all of your peanuts. That's okay, she replied. I already sucked all of the chocolate off of them. Good old peanut M&M's. Save that joke. In my own visitations, I've had a few fails. The most epic was as a chaplain for Lamore PD, responding to a death, when I nearly introduced myself to the deceased in front of his family. I'm not going to tell the story here. You wouldn't believe it anyway. You had to be there. Visitation of the sick was one of the things James had on his heart as he closed his letter to the dispersed Messianic Jews. And so in verse 13 he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. James mentions two ends of a spiritual spectrum, suffering on one end and what I could call abounding on the other. And he thus includes everything in between. So anything that you could be going through on that spectrum, he's asking you about. James had a strong theology of suffering. And by that I mean he understood that Christians would, in this world, have tribulation. The particular word he used for suffering means trouble of any kind. It can be physical or financial or spiritual or emotional. At the other end of the spectrum are times when you are cheerful. He's going for the idea that you're in a time of spiritual blessing and abounding. Things are going well in your life spiritually. Now at both ends and everywhere in between, you need to involve the Lord. He is there with you in your suffering, so talk to Him in prayer. He is there in your times of blessing, so sing to Him. Suffering can cause us to doubt God and His goodness, which then hinders our prayers. Just keep praying, just keep praying, 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 praying. Times of blessing, I don't know if you realize it or not, super dangerous. They are the breeding ground for spiritual complacency or worse, spiritual pride as you begin to think that you deserve to be blessed. Rejoicing in the Lord acknowledges that your abundance is all from His hand and that every good and perfect gift is from above. James next focuses on one particularly difficult type of suffering. In verse 14 he asks, Is any among you sick? Physical illness and death entered into God's creation when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, in his role as the second Adam, has conquered death and illness. But since he has not yet returned to rule, and we are still in our fallen bodies, these are not yet eradicated. If you believe everyone can be healed, and there are individuals who say this, then you must also believe that they need never die. Besides being ridiculous, that is not the plain teaching of the New Testament. Many sincere servants of the Lord are described as falling ill and dying, even when they're in the company of apostles who had gifts of healing. The apostles all died martyrs' deaths, with the exception of John. They tried to kill him. Eventually, they exiled him to Patmos. He later died a natural death, emphasis on he died. Going forward in this verse, it's important we realize that if any are sick among us, they may or may not be healed. It does not promise healing if certain conditions are met. James has already taught us that the overriding condition of prayer is, if the Lord wills. And so, if the Lord wills, he will heal. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord. The New Testament mentions certain men as gifted servant leaders of the church. They are pastor-teachers, elders, and deacons. The Bible gives a lot of room as to actually how those men are to govern the church, how they work together in what would be called church government. Rather than getting stalled here in an explanation of the three or so forms of biblical church government, I think we're on safe scriptural ground by simply saying James wanted them to call upon the recognized leaders of the fellowship. Some of these young fellowships in the Bible, like the church at Thessalonica, only three weeks old when Paul had to leave, doubtful they had a group of 
elders, probably one or two individuals, perhaps, that were kind of the leaders of that group at the time. And so in the context and just in general, James is saying, hey, call for the leaders of your church, whatever you call them, however they function together. Something else to note before we go on, this appears to be a case of severe sickness. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for a common cold, but this situation was severe. First is the fact that the elders are called to the sick man, indicating that he could not come to them. Second, it is the elders who do all the praying. It hints at weakness in the one who was sick. The fact the word James chose for sick, uh, in fact, rather, the word he chose means weary and worn. Third, the elders are said to pray over him. Now, by itself, that wouldn't mean anything, but it seems to indicate that he was bedridden. And so taken together, we have a form of severe sickness. The elders are called upon to do two things, to pray over him and to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. James is going to expand upon the particulars of the elders praying in verse 15. So let's uh, talk first about anointing with oil. The Jews were all about anointing with oil, mostly olive oil. It was used medicinally. The Good Samaritan poured oil into the wounds of the man who had been robbed and beaten. Isaiah 1 verse 6 says, From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. And so olive oil and oils in general were medicinal. It's also the custom of the Jews at the time to anoint themselves with oil as a means of personal hygiene. In Psalm 104.15, we read that God has given, and I quote, oil to make a man's face shine. So apparently they were anointing their faces with oil. When Ruth was to see Boaz, she was told, and I quote, therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Oil was also used to anoint priests and kings as a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit coming upon those men. When Samuel anointed David to be Israel's king, we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In Psalm 133, we get a description of the anointing of the high priest when we read, It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. When you broke out with oil, a Jew would have all these in mind. It simultaneously represented the Holy Spirit, hygiene, and healing. If you read Bible commentaries, you find a lot of times the commentators or the pastors, they want to decide on which James is talking about. But in reality, if you were a Jew in that culture, when oil came out, you thought of all of that at once. You thought of being anointed with oil for healing and of your daily anointing just for hygiene and about the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that they were to anoint in the name of the Lord indicates this anointing of the sick was primarily symbolic. I mean, when a Jew put on oil every day as a part of his personal hygiene or when he had it applied to a wound, it wasn't in the name of the Lord. It was just ordinary and mundane. And so when they anointed in the name of the Lord, it was to represent symbolically God's presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The sick man had undoubtedly already employed oil or other means of healing. 
That would be normal and natural. There's nothing wrong with that because it is God who gives us those means. God is not against medicine. And there's no hint here that the elders be called before or instead of the physician. This is undoubtedly a situation where a person got sick and they uh, used whatever medicinal things were at hand and then as they got sicker, they called the elders of the church. All healing, even using medicine, is God's prerogative. And so they brought him into the situation by using oil to anoint as a visible representation of his healing, of restoring health. It gave the strong reminder that God can heal. Should we use oil today to anoint the sick? Well, here's what decides it for me. If we read in verse 15, James says, It is the prayer of faith that saves the sick not the anointing with oil. Now, having said that, I don't want you to think I'm against this or that I think it's unscriptural. I'm not against anointing with oil. I've done it over the years. I have to admit, though, that the way we modern Christians anoint with oil is not really biblical. So people say, well, if you don't anoint the sick with oil the way the Bible says, you're not following the Bible. I said, okay, let's go all the way. When you get... Uh, when I get to your house and you give me the bottle of olive oil, instead of putting my finger on the cap and putting a tiny dot of oil on your forehead, which is what we do, I'm going to pour that entire bottle over your head. And it's going to run down your face, into your beard if you're a man, and onto your clothing, so better get ready. And I'll tell you, if you start doing that, you're going to be the one that needs anointing with oil. Because that's going to surprise some people. And... Uh, probably ruin their clothing in their Berber carpet. These guys had oil poured over their heads. And so I'm, I'm all for it. I'm not against it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'll dab or I'll pour. But truthfully, using oil has little meaning to us the way it did to the Jews. And so it becomes a little ritualistic. You can't look at the Bible and say, oh, that was just cultural, just for that time. That that's sometimes gets you into trouble. But you can't deny that oil was a huge part of the Jewish culture and that they used it for medicine. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't reach for Neosporin. They reached for oil. They didn't reach for aspirin. They reached for oil. And, and so it was, a, it was a big part of their culture in a way that it's not... In ours. And the truth is, if we're not careful, this can become a little ritualistic. It could even become superstitious, as if the anointing with oil itself somehow affected the healing. I don't want to get deep into this, but I would cite as an example the Roman Catholic practice of last rites comes from this passage, and it is very superstitious. And it actually misses the mark because James is talking about healing and last rites is given to those who are dying or dead. And so it got way off track into ritual um, because they misunderstand what's really going on here. Potions and positions and postures are not required for God to heal. They smack of ritual that reduces God to a heavenly genie who needs to be rubbed the right way in order for him to respond. Now let's get into the prayer of faith in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now we already know from the Bible that not everyone will be healed. This is not a promise that if you have enough faith, God will heal you. And it's the elders who pray, so we can't blame the one who's sick in any case. 
I've experienced many times, talked to believers over the years, who've had their pastor or the elders of their church come over and pray for them. And it's a health and wealth church, a name it and claim it church. And then they don't get well, and then the pastor says, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, according to James, you don't have enough faith. Because I didn't pray at all. Maybe you need to look at yourself. And so, uh, turn the tables. I mean, that's the truth. So we're not talking about having enough faith. The wording here is interesting. It isn't a prayer that is prayed by a person or persons having great faith. James doesn't say, call for, peop- call for the elders and if they have enough faith, or if you have enough faith, you can be healed. This is a particular prayer. It literally reads, the prayer of faith. Now, the best thing I can do is give you an example. One day, Peter and John were going into the Jewish temple to pray. As they were going through the gate, they noticed a beggar, a certain man lame from his mother's womb, who was laid daily there to ask for alms. Peter and John had passed that way before many times. But on this particular passage, God the Holy Spirit directed their attention to the lame beggar, and we read the following account. This is from Acts chapter 3. So he gave them his attention, the beggar did, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. That is is an example of the prayer of faith. Peter and John had walked by this guy before. The text indicates this was his regular place to hang out and ask for alms every day of his life. It was his spot. They had been by him before. And nothing like this had ever happened, even though they had gifts of healing. And one day, God the Holy Spirit told Peter to fix his gaze upon this man and to pray for him and to reach out and to lift him up because he knew that he would be healed. That is the prayer of faith. What James was suggesting is that the elders be sensitive to the Holy Spirit prompting them to pray the prayer of faith with the certainty that the sick man will be healed. In other words, James is saying it's possible that when the elders pray, God will grant the prayer of faith and you will be able to raise up the sick individual. One commentator put it this way in a more general sense. He said, we should always be alert in our prayers to the fact that God may wish to give us a particular gift of faith in relation to something which we ask Him. Most of our prayers in the plan and providence of God will not be the prayer of faith. We might call those prayers of rest because we are directed by God's answer to rest in His will and in His wisdom. Have you ever considered what an awful world this would be if all of your prayers were answered? Think of some of the prayers you may maybe prayed a few years ago and think of where you are now, maybe a job that you wanted, maybe a relationship that you wanted to be in, and you're so much better off now than you would have been had all your prayers been answered. There's always sci-fi things where people get their way or the whole world is filled with people like you and it's miserable. It's terrible. So the truth is, I don't want my prayers answered that are outside of the will of God because ultimately they're not good for me 
And they're certainly not good for others. And that helps me to understand something very curious about this whole passage. Why call the elders of the church? And here's what I mean. In the first century, if anyone was sick, why not call an apostle who had gifts of healing? Indeed, when Dorcas died, they sent for Peter, believing he could restore her to life, and he did. If not an apostle, why not call someone with the gifts of healing? So again, I ask, why call the elders? Well, this is my personal speculation, but I think it's because if the prayer of faith isn't granted by God, that sick person is going to need a great deal of spiritual support and counsel about their sickness, and they need to get it from mature men of God who have a strong theology of suffering. Severe sickness is no time for cliches or for thoughtless comments, and hopefully a mature leader can avoid those and bring real spiritual insight or at least cause no spiritual harm. For example, even though I just explained this a few minutes ago, if the elders come and pray for you, and you don't get healed, it's natural to think it's because you don't have enough faith. I don't even have to say that. Of course, we would never say that, even though others do. But you think, well, if I only had more faith, if I was a better Christian. And this is set up in a way that says, it has nothing to do with your faith. You didn't even pray. You were just there sick. All you did was have faith to reach out to the elders. If anything, it's their faith, but it's not even their faith. It's whether or not God wants to grant the prayer of faith. It's up to God whether He wants to heal you or not. He can, but will He? And in times like those, when God doesn't give the healing, people need real counsel about what's happening in their life and what is likely to happen And they don't need cliches and platitudes and and the things that we nervously say to people because we're trying to help them. Verse 15, he gets into a different subject, but along the same lines of prayer. It says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, we're quick to point out that not every sickness is the direct result of an individual sin. James agrees saying, if, indicating that it is not always, it's not even mostly the case. But he adds this because it might be the case, in some cases, that sickness is the direct result of sin. In the church at Corinth, for example, many were sick and some were dying. And Paul says it's because they were sinning at the communion table. They were coming and hoarding their food at the potluck, and then they were getting drunk and taking communion in an unworthy manner. And God said, I'm going to make some of you sick, and I'm going to kill some of you. And he did. And so Paul said, in that case, it was a warning to the church and a discipline to individual Christians. And so, uh, now, John, in one of his epistles, says, I'm not to ask people, hey, do you think if you're sick because of sin? That's between them and the Lord. But it's at least possible that some sickness can be brought on because of sin. But even James says that's not likely. But if that's the case, and if there's sin involved... God will forgive that individual. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Read this carefully. He says, not sins, but trespasses, meaning faults, are to be confessed. And they're to be confessed to one another, not to the elders or to one elder who has no connection with the faults. This isn't one scene playing out. James isn't saying, now while the elders are there, it's a great time for you to confess your sins to them. 
No, he says you're to confess to one another, and and it hasn't. It has to do with sin between two individuals. There's no justification here for the ritual of confession to a priest. James was talking about a Matthew 18 situation where a brother has ought against another brother, where someone has sinned against another believer, where there's a fault between two believers. They're to go to one another and work it out by agreeing it was sin, repenting, and being reconciled. Whatever fault was between them is removed, and they can now pray for one another. The healing they receive is spiritual. It's a return to fellowship with God and with each other. And then he adds, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's universally agreed that this is a bad translation. A better one is, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James wants us to believe prayer is powerful and effective. It doesn't need to be fervent, as we will see in his example. In other words, he's not teaching that if you really, 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 really pray, God has to answer. He's just saying, when you pray... It is powerful, and it is effective. Now, we might shy away from this, first of all, thinking, I'm not a righteous man or woman. But by righteous, James simply means you're saved. You are right with God, justified by your faith in Jesus Christ, and thereby you are declared righteous from heaven. Every Christian is a righteous man or a righteous woman. Your prayer is powerful and effective, whether it is the prayer of faith or a prayer of rest, or prayer between reconciled parties. And then he gives us an example in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah, at one point in his ministry, took on 450 prophets of Baal. He challenged them to call upon their God, to ignite a sacrifice by bringing fire from heaven. They exhausted themselves trying, but they failed. Elijah called upon the God of Israel, and the fire came and consumed the sacrifice and quite a lot of other things as well. But it wasn't really about the fire. Elijah was staking everything on the fact that our God hears prayer and answers. Basically, his challenge was, let's see if your God hears prayers and answers. My God does. Elijah soon after was being hunted down by Jezebel. He grew depressed to the point of wishing he could die. He wasn't suicidal. He prayed to God to end his life. Even in his depression, Elijah prayed. He had become a man of prayer. Now the particular episode James uses here to show the effect and power of prayer is the drought that Israel endured as a result of Elijah's praying. And once again, the word earnestly in he prayed earnestly is a poor translation. It literally reads, with prayer he prayed. He just prayed and God answered. James is saying, just pray and God will answer you. Now you might be thinking, that's great, except when I just pray, it's never the prayer of faith, and nothing miraculous like starting or ending a drought ever happens, nobody ever gets healed, and nothing ever changes. The answer to that is, yes, it does. It's just not the way we might want it to. Prayers of resting in God's sufficient grace are powerful, they are effective. If God is not going to grant a healing... 
you're going to need His grace to be sufficient for you. And that is a powerful thing. God can heal. He's proven that He can. Jesus healed almost everyone and cast out demons to boot. He raised Lazarus from the dead. When I say He healed almost everyone... Commentators point out that this same lame man we talked about at the gate that Peter and John healed, Jesus had walked by him many times as well. And he left them, uh, left him to be healed later by Peter and John. So nobody doubts that Jesus can heal. He can. And if I might say so reverently, that's easy for him. Nothing is easier than for God to heal you. If he chooses to not heal, or to answer your prayer in a way you dislike, it must be because He has something else in mind for you that will further you on your way to becoming like Jesus. I hesitate to say God has something better for you because at the time, you disagree. So uh, we need to avoid saying, well, you're not being healed, so God has something better for you. It sure doesn't feel better. It, It feels terrible. You can't see how it's better for someone you love to die from their sickness rather than be healed when you know God can do that. Perhaps a better word than better would be necessary. If God takes you through something rather than answering your prayer the way you would like, it must be necessary. There is, after all, a bigger picture which we will not see until we are with Jesus Christ. We can see a little bit of the bigger picture in our own life looking back as I suggested earlier about prayers that we're thankful that weren't answered the way we wanted them to. But we can't see the really big picture that God can see. And we need to, in in that way, rest in Him, have prayers of rest for His sufficient grace. It's as if Jesus is saying, you see what I can do, so trust me, if I don't do what you're asking, what I am doing is necessary. Verses 19 and 20, is any among you sinning? Every now and then there's a sad story about someone being assaulted while bystanders do nothing. There's even a TV show, What Would You Do?, where actors act out scenes of conflict or illegal activity in public settings while cameras videotape and the focus is on whether or not the bystanders intervene. You notice they never film those in Kern or Kings County because somebody's going to get shot one of these days. I'm going to intervene. We're generally appalled when bystanders do nothing. James points out a situation in the church where we sometimes stand by doing nothing, even though the consequences are dire. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. God's word is truth. Truth is something you have to live out. We prove we know the truth by a life that matches it. It's like the donut man sings concerning the Bible. I read it and I do it. And so it is truth that is to be lived out. How sad when someone who was in fellowship gradually or suddenly wanders off back into the world, back into sin. They may still be attending the fellowship, but their sin becomes known. There's no call from them to the elders to pray. They aren't wanting to be rescued. They may even be antagonistic to any suggestion that we intervene. Some of the wandering is slow. You might just suggest that they haven't been coming to church as much or as involved or they seem to be slipping away. And and some people bristle over that. 
And it's a technique that they use to keep you from going after them. But we cannot remain bystanders while a brother or sister is headed towards or already in sin. We can turn him or her back. James gives no instruction as to how we do that, just that we make any and every effort to do so. And he says, you save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Commentators are split as to whether this is a backslidden believer or whether it's a non-believer. And what's fun about this is that the words that James chose can apply to either, since we don't know. I don't know if you're a backslidden believer or if you're a non-believer who just professes Christ. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's a very broad, sweeping thing telling us, and the emphasis is on us who are walking with the Lord, go after people. If they are mere professors of Christ, they don't have Christ as their Savior, the phrase saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins makes straightforward sense. Their sins are covered or atoned for at the cross of Jesus Christ. Their eternal soul, once headed for Hades, then to hell, now has a heavenly destination. So that makes sense. The soul of the backslidden Christian can also be described as being saved from death in a spiritual sense. James told believers earlier in his letter that sin in their life will bring forth death. And we can think of things, precious things, that die when you wander into sin. Marriages are killed. Families are destroyed. Friendships are ruined. Churches fail. Ministries fall apart. Sin brings death. And so when a Christian is in sin, he or she has a tendency to ruin and kill everything that is beautiful. You kill things in a very real spiritual and emotional sense. And even when you repent and are forgiven, some of the things you've killed remain dead. There are some things you just never recover from because the damage was so great. When you go after a backslidden believer and they respond to you, you cover their sins in these ways. First of all, if their sin was sort of personal, just something you found out they were doing, there's no need for others to know. It's not something we publish. If their sin was against one or more, then as we've seen, they need to go to that person or be approached by that person, and that small circle of people needs to be asked to forgive. If their sin was open and public, then all those who were affected need to be brought into the process of restoration. And with that, James is done. What an abrupt ending to a letter. Some churches, as you exit, have a sign that reads... You are now entering the mission field. You ever seen that in a church? It's a famous thing. You're now entering the mission field. This is James' exit sign, verses 19 and 20. We could paraphrase it, uh, paraphrase it rather and say, now entering the world in order to turn back wanderers. Seen that way, it's actually a perfect conclusion because as I've said, a major theme in this letter is wisdom. And in Proverbs, we read that he who wins souls is wise. So James says, I've taught you about wisdom. Bring God's wisdom into every situation and remember that he who wins souls, he who goes after the wanderer, whether it's evangelism or a backslidden Christian, that person is wise. Let's pray.